the um, promptings of their own hearts when they pray. But did you hear what Pastor Nathan just prayed? You know, that the Lord would open our hearts with the word of God and give the spirit a handle for which to turn our wills with the word of God. And that's what my aim is every week as we open the Bible is that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, will use the word of God to turn our wills into alignment with being like Jesus Christ. Is that your prayer? That should be your prayer as you hear the word of God preached. Lord, shape me into the image of your very son with the word of God. Let me read from the word of God this morning. Um, Philippians, uh, it's one chapter, so it's chapter one. It's the only one. And it's 25 verses. We are taking, what did I say? Philippians? Let's not do Philippians. We did that for a year. Let's do Philemon instead. Thank you for that. You know, it's good to have some interactive uh, dynamics sometimes, especially when I call us to the wrong book. Um, Philemon, let's do Philemon instead. I want to read verses 8 through 16 this morning, and this is all about forgiveness, and we're taking our time through this study to let that theme sink deeply into our hearts and our minds and our wills so that we will experience the joy of our own forgiveness as we forgive others. Um, Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant but much but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the lord now i'm not a huge history buff but i do get moved by history from time to time, and especially as I hear quotes that capture the heart of a very meaningful moment in history, especially in terms of our own country's history. And there's been a lot of uh, you know, books that have come out about Abraham Lincoln and even a movie recently, but um, this is a, a quote that I came across this week where Abraham Lincoln was Um, quieting some people who were starting to spike up in animosity against the Confederacy, against um, the South, uh, those states which uh, viewed themselves as countries back in that day who 
had lost the war. And one person filled with some animosity towards the South is a guy I'd never heard of, but perhaps you have, uh, Thaddeus Stevens. And he was a, a man who was Pennsylvanian. He was born with a club foot. So he limped around um, his whole life from childhood with a bit of a, that was a bit of a word picture or picture of his attitude. He had a chip on his shoulder and it drove him to become a preeminent lawyer who was well-respected. And then he rose throughout the U.S. House of Representatives, and he went to Abraham Lincoln after the war was won, and he was a fierce opponent of slavery and discrimination against African Americans, and he sought to secure their rights through radical reconstruction. In essence, he wanted uh, the Southerners to just yield their land up and even give it over to African Americans and, and sort of was demanding for this radical reconstruction. And though there were probably some, some well-founded principles in Thaddeus uh, Stevens' presentation, Abraham Lincoln knew that things were not going to be that simple in terms of unifying our country. And so this is what he said to Stevens. Lincoln's reply, Do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend? Think about that. Do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend? What Lincoln was saying is what I think our beloved Apostle Paul is trying to do in the heart of Philemon. And that is, listen, when you think about restoring a relationship or you think about making a wrong right. You're not just dealing with an issue or a political matter or an agenda or, or seeking restitution sort of on paper and making things right. You know what you're dealing with? You're dealing with people when we're talking in terms of the matter of forgiveness. We're dealing with other people's lives, other people's souls, other people who are also made in the image of God. Men and women who perhaps you've been at odds with and you need to reconcile with, you need to do that on a, on a heart level, person to person. In other words, reconciliation isn't about just making things right on a superficial level. It's actually becoming friends again, if God wills. And it, it takes God's sovereign will for people who are at odds with each other to then again become restored on a friendship level, right? Isn't that what God said you and I have received? We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God. We were against God. We were under the wrath of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. A corpse laid on the ground, loving and feeding on sins, destined for hell. And God swooped in and lifted us up out of the miry clay, put our feet on solid, uh, solid ground, made our footsteps firm, put a new song in our heart, a song of praise unto him, and he called us, John 15, as friends. Hebrews says that we become a brother with Christ. We're part of his adopted, beloved relationship as family members in the family of God. That's reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't just signing a card, joining a church, saying, I'm a Christian, I'm this denomination or that. That's superficial. Reconciliation is when you become a family member, a child of God. You become his, 
the object of his affection towards you and he is the object of affection that you have towards him. You are in love with each other. And that is what should happen also in the body of Christ when reconciliation is taking place. This is what Paul is setting the conditions to happen for. He's wanting Philemon to welcome Onesimus back into his life and to welcome him in now, not just as a servant who rebelled against him, but now as a brother. And we'll see in this text, he's to treat Onesimus now, who ran from him and stole from him, who's coming back, he's to treat Onesimus now not just as a brother, but the best brother, his favorite family member. That's reconciliation. That's when things are right. That's the joy of the Christian life, and it's the hope that we can have when we're at odds with people, we can pray towards and hope for and and be open for full restoration, full reconciliation. And those joys can happen even in this life. And I want to op- be, us to be open to that as we read through the text here. Now again, the proposition that I've been laying before us over these weeks is that we never have the option to withhold forgiveness. We should generally forgive people because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven. So we're not holding people's sins against them. But we're also praying for a special reconciliation, a personal reconciliation, where when someone seeks our forgiveness or we're seeking someone's forgiveness, forgiveness is not withheld. We should never withhold forgiveness from each other. And there's a warning in the teachings of Christ that says if we will not forgive, then our Heavenly Father won't forgive us. It is non-Christian, in other words. It is Perhaps revealing that you're not a Christian if you're not willing to forgive someone who's coming to you and saying, will you please forgive me? That's why I read that parable earlier. The unforgiving servant. He had been forgiven so much by his master. An unpayable debt he was forgiven. And then he turned around and when his servant um, owed a debt against him that was much smaller and he was unwilling to forgive him and was strangling him, his servants turned him in. Remember that parable? I just read it. And they turned him in and the master saw that this man's heart had not changed. He had like volitionally experienced or on a mental level he ex- had experienced grace, but he had not experienced grace in his heart. He, he wasn't transformed on the inside. And so he was put in prison. Debtor's prison, which is a symbol and picture of hell. So we don't want to be like that servant. We don't want to be the hard-hearted person who's just pretending to be a Christian. We want to be a real Christian, amen? You want to be the real thing from the inside out where you're proving that you love Christ because you're willing to do radical reconciliation with people that you don't believe deserve it, but if they're open to reconcile, you're open to them. It's being open-hearted towards each other, and it's proving your genuine spirituality, Because you're thinking in terms of eternity. You're thinking in terms of the grace that was first given to you. Well, as we work through the outline here, if you have it in front of you, um, the reason that you can't withhold forgiveness, number one, is God's given you a new Christian identity. We've been looking through Philemon's transformation, his new identity that was given to him that Paul prayed through. And we looked at last week, verses four through seven. And now this week, we're going to explore a little bit more deeply Onesimus's before and after, how he was changed and transformed. Let's pick up on that beginning in verse 10. We've touched on these things, but by way of review and just to get us going, verse 10, I appeal to you, my child, 
for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. The significance here of Paul in his great condescension here of saying that this runaway fugitive thieving slave is now his child is that Paul the apostle, the great apostle of the New Testament, the leader of the New Testament church is saying Onesimus is a dear technion. He is a dear beloved child as if as if he was born to me in my family. He, he is my precious son. On the same level, does he put Onesimus with Timothy? Remember, he calls Timothy, my son in the faith, my son in the faith, not just because Paul probably led him to Christ or, or was part of that process, but because Paul raised Timothy spiritually. And in the same way, he had been raising Onesimus spiritually. Onesimus wasn't just a rescue story with a prayer, co prayer conversion that he's sending back. No, he had sort of kept Onesimus with him, held him there in Roman imprisonment, a thousand miles from his home, there to serve him and to minister as a co-laborer in gospel work. He not only had won Onesimus to Christ, but he also was putting Onesimus to work uh, for gospel mission because Onesimus wasn't under house arrest. He was coming and going and probably teaching and serving and was Paul's hands and feet. And so he wanted personally for Onesimus to stay with him. But he wanted also for Philemon to understand that Onesimus was on the same level now in Paul's heart with Philemon. Onesimus is a believer. He's as much a beloved brother and son in the faith to me as you are, Philemon. And so you, the onus is on you to receive him back in that regard. The rabbis described converts as a child just born. And so Paul knew what he meant when he was saying, I've given birth to this guy. He's, he's my friend against all odds kinds of circumstances have led Onesimus to Christ. John Calvin, I know he gets kind of a bad rep and, you know, he's sort of the ivory tower theologian who, you know, was part of Servetus being burned at the stake. I know, I know, I know. But just listen to me. John Calvin, if you really get to know the heart of this man and you get past some of, um, some of those stigmas or stereotypes, was really a pastor and um, had a heart for the word of God and for the flock. And he, I was reading him about Onesimus and he was saying, listen, you have to allow for God to save people in the most extraordinary, unbelievable ways, unbelievable circumstances where someone like devious Onesimus um, was saved through incredible labyrinths, incredible circumstances and, and testimonies. And so Paul did that. Paul loved Onesimus. Listen, I have to, you know, just to give you a little historical background. In the Roman Empire, when Onesimus came to Paul and found him at Rome, it put Paul at tremendous risk because, remember, Onesimus was a fugitive. He was running. There were bounty hunters after him, slave hunters after him. And Paul gave him refuge at personal risk. Now, Paul was already going before Caesar, so he was already living a risky Christian life. But you were only supposed to give refuge to a runaway for 20 days under Roman law. And I think, just in some of my research here, I think Paul was leaning more on Old Testament law than Roman law. Because in Deuteronomy 23, 15, and 16, it says, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you, 
He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So I think Paul was saying, I'm going to obey God's law rather than man's law. I'm going to give this guy refuge and I'm going to see this as a sovereignty of God opportunity for me to lead him to Christ. And I think he, he did. He did. The Bible says he did. Verse 11, this is his testimony. Formerly, he, Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. What is Paul saying there? Onesimus, as a name, was a fitting name for a slave, and it meant useful. That was just a themed name, meant useful. And so Paul's using a play on words here. But he's not just talking about the fact that Onesimus was unsaved and, and, and so useless, and now spiritually he's saved and so he's useful. Instead, what Paul is doing here is he's revealing the fact that Paul understands that Onesimus, before he came to Christ, was really a useless servant. He was not a good worker. He was acknowledging the fact that Paul and Onesimus had a strained former relationship. Now we know from verses four through seven that Philemon was a upstanding guy and, and no doubt was a very kind master, a kind employer, if you will, if you put it in the modern day vernacular. He was a kind boss. He wasn't abusive. He would have been someone who would have been following Colossians 4.1, which was the broader letter sent at the same time of, of Philemon. 4.1 says, Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so Philemon, for, for all of intents and purposes, was a just and fair leader, boss, master. But Onesimus, on the other hand, was a liar, lacked integrity, stole, and ran. And so probably he was a deadbeat around the house. And so there were some hurdles that, that Philemon was going to have to get over to actually forgive this man. And of course, there was some tension mounting as this letter was read, either led public, read publicly or Paul's reading it privately. Onesimus has just shown up. He's been away for a long period of time, a good little stretch of months and months probably away, even in travel to Rome for him to run out of his money and seek refuge with Paul and then be and be led to Christ and stay there. And now he's back. So it's been a long time. And so as Philemon is trying to read his way through the beginning of the letter, he comes to verse 10. And finally, the name Onesimus is mentioned and he's called useful, useful. He was, led, he was led to Christ and he's transformed. In other words, Paul is saying, look, this is a man who has genuinely repented. He's, he's brought fruit in keeping with repentance. He's born fruit that way. Now, we're going to skip verse 12 and go down to verse 13 and then come back to verse 12, okay? Let's go to verse 13. Again, Paul's saying, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. What I want to pick up here is, is again, Paul's shepherding style. Paul was a master shepherd and leader. He was a man who could have commanded Philemon out the, out the gate and said, Philemon, you must forgive Onesimus. How dare you if you don't forgive Onesimus? But instead of trying to bend Philemon's will or sort of force him to obey, which he was well within his rights as an apostle to command lead, instead he, used, he uses the word over and over again to appeal. He's appealing to Philemon's conscience. 
And he's not appealing by using guilt. A lot of times leaders will say, I'm not going to command you, but I'll just guilt you into obeying. You know, I try that tactic sometimes as a husband, and it really doesn't work very well, you know, and you can talk to Judy afterwards. But, you know, guilt trips don't work either. And he was trying to not guilt trip, and he, and he, but he was trying to lead by, by softening the heart of Philemon through his words. He was trying to woo him towards obedience. That's always the better way. And you see this in verse 13. He's not guilt tripping him by saying, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. He's not guilt tripping there. What he's saying in, in essence is, look, Onesimus it was able to do something that I know you wish that you could have done for me. I know that you know I'm in jail here in Rome, but we're a thousand miles apart from each other. And I know that in your heart of hearts, you would have wanted to have been here serving with me on the front lines in the gospel. Well, guess what? Onesimus, this guy who was your deadbeat slave, now he's this brother in Christ who's an on-fire Christian, and he got to do the very thing for months and months that you would have wished that you could have done. That's what Paul is doing. He's opening Philemon's heart. And interesting, I mentioned that. Look at verse 12. Let's jump backwards. I'm sending him back to you. Sending, let's say it together. Sending my very heart. The word heart there, I said it last week. It's not cardia, it's splagnos. It's emotions, it's feelings. It's, it's literally, it's the bowels or the intestines. It's where you feel things in your guts. And what Paul is saying is, look, I'm sending a, a part of me back to you. That's how meaningful Onesimus is to me. Now, have you ever had relationships happen that are the most unlikely relationships, but for the body of Christ? You never would have trafficked with these people. You never would have connected with these people. I, you know, I had that experience uh, last night. I saw someone who was at the conference over the weekend who I, I, I never knew personally. I didn't know he was a Christian, and I for sure didn't know he was a pastor. And, you know, he, he speaks broken English, and he's Mexican. So, you know, he's, he's speaking Spanish to me and sort of this Spanish English as we're talking to each other because I said, I saw you at the conference. And so we struck up this conversation. And this brother in Christ who is, uh, you know, older than me, he's uh, a different race, uh, he's not clearly speaking English, but it was worth the effort because the more that we talked, the more I understood this guy um, as a, a brother in Christ who's, who's started churches in Mexico, who's encouraged pastors down there, who's encouraged uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in LA and, and then up here in Anchorage. And we just got into this conversation. And by the end of it, I told him I'd been on a couple mission trips down to Mexico. And I said, you know, I really enjoyed it down there. And he's going, thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, it just was so meaningful for him, for me to connect with him on those levels together. And you can do that in the body of Christ if you know Christ together. And that's what Paul is setting the stage for. For for Onesimus to be viewed as a beloved brother, which is the words used both in, Philemon, both in the book of Philemon and also in Colossians 4, verse 9. Now, we've seen so far that you can't withhold forgiveness because you've been given new identities. And we've looked at Philemon, his before Christ and his after Christ um, testimony. We've looked at Onesimus, his before Christ and his after Christ testimony. But now I want to build into point two of the outline, which is you can't withhold forgiveness because God refashions hearts to love. And we've talked about that. 
The Holy Spirit of God, when you become a Christian, sheds the love, of the love of Christ abroad in your heart. If you don't love people, if you've got no compassion for people, if you've got sort of a flat line in your heart, you've got to examine your heart and say, do I have the Holy Spirit in my life if I have no love or compassion for people? You should have love and compassion for your immediate family. You should have love and compassion for your extended family. You should have love and compassion for Christians in the body of Christ. You should have love and compassion for the greater, broader people groups around Anchorage, which we are very multicultural here. You should have love shed abroad in your heart for people who are Americans, both Republicans and Democrats. You should have love shed abroad in your heart in that way. You should have love shed abroad in your heart for people who are in different denominations. You should have love shed abroad in your heart for people who are living in total sin or people who have uh, liberal lifestyles. And with the homosexual agenda, as we know, it's, it's always in the news. You should have love shed in your broad apart, you know, for people who are homosexual. You should have love that is shed abroad in your hearts for people of different races, people, people who are male, people who are female, people who are handicapped, people who are, are whoever, people who have it all and people who have nothing. You should have love shed abroad in your heart for your enemy. Now I'm in your kitchen. You know, the one who you really secretly hate, you should instead, as a Christian, love. You say, but you don't know what that person did to me or the grudge that they're holding against me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In Christ, because we have God who is, who is giving us the fuel and the capacity to love through transformation, because he has retrained and reinvented your stony heart into a heart that's made to love, you should be able to love even your enemy, and we should. We should, we should pray for people and witness to people and care for people and be open to people. Why? Because God gives you the fuel and the capacity to do that. There is no excuse in the body of Christ not to love even people who hate you. Jesus dying on the cross, Father, forget, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was love. That was a prayer for them to be saved. And many of those people did become Christians at Pentecost a little bit later on, after Jesus died and rose again and went to the right hand of the Father. Well, a couple subpoints about being refashioned. Paul here is circumventing potential insubordination. We talked about that last week, verses 8 through 12 and verse 20. He's making sure that, that um, Philemon doesn't bow up and say, Oh yeah, well you don't understand my rights. We don't have any rights in, in Christ. We we want to esteem others higher than ourselves. And then Paul circumvents any sense of entitlement in verses 13 and 14. Very key verses here. Look at this. Um, again, we looked at verse 13. Look at 14. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by, my, but by your own accord. Um, Paul here is, again, exercising an incredible example of spiritual leadership. As parents, it is so much better to lead your children by appealing to their hearts, is it not? It's hard. Uh, you know, I'm convicted personally. It's a lot easier for me to sort of raise the volume and lay down the law than to say, hey, what's going on? What's happening? Tell me what just happened. Okay, there's a stool turned over here. You're crying in that corner. 
You're not bleeding out, so we can leave you there crying for a second. Okay, what happened, right? And in sports, we also know that typically the flag is thrown for the guy that's throwing the punch back, not the initial jar that happened that the ref didn't see. But that's harder work to do, to hear both sides of the story, to hear what happened, what's going on, to untangle the spooled up knots and find out the real issues on a heart level. But that's what the Apostle Paul is modeling for us here. Paul is going after Philemon's heart. And look, uh, verse 8 says he's bold enough in Christ to command I mean, Paul, he was bold. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, he says, I'm begging you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing. He could have been bold to the Corinthians, but he's saying, I'm begging you that I don't have to be that way. Don't make me have to lay down the law. And there is a sense in which pastors and shepherds and elders, just like parents, at times you have to lay down the law. You have to say, look, there is obedience here. There, there is submission. But, but far better to be able to appeal and to shepherd and to open hearts up so that there's an openness for obedience. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. In other words, look, I want to just follow protocol, and we want to send him back to you. You know, in one sense, he's a brother in Christ. He's serving me. He's doing kingdom work. And and I could have just said, you need to forgive him, and I'm going to keep him with me. But I'm sending him back, and I'm putting the ball in your court so that you will open your heart within the moment. So Paul's a shepherd. He's a shepherd here. He's seeking the better way. What's the goodness here? Look at verse 14 again. Your goodness is that Philemon would be restored to Onesimus. I want to direct your attention to 1 Peter um, 5. Some of you in the body of Christ have brought this um, passage up to my attention, and I don't want to shy away from it. You know, we emphasize eldership here and and leadership um, who who come together and regularly pray for the flock. We're having an elders meeting this Thursday. Um, We have an open portion of that, which you can come to. And then we have other portions that that we close for executive session to talk about personnel issues and, and the like. But as an elder board, I want you to know, we regularly, the pastors are participate in the eldership and the elders um, together, we very seriously and very personally pray for you. Where we have, we know of needs, where we know of issues, people who are, who are, you know, have terminal diseases, people who are in trouble, um, uh, spiritual issues, relationships, reconciliation. We pray through those things regularly. I want you to know that. We want to be the, the shepherds of 1 Peter chapter 5. And the elders, we don't claim perfection. We, we've not arrived, but we are trying our best to um, follow the example that's laid down by Paul and by Peter in Scripture. And Peter, he said in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Here Peter was, you know, very close to Jesus Christ himself, but he's just saying, look, I'm one of the fellow elders and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he calls the pastors who are elders um, this in, to this in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. It's that same idea where Paul didn't want to, 
Um, he didn't want Philemon to feel some sort of fleshly compulsion to um, forgive. But in the same way, the elder shepherds are to not serve under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful, shameful gain, but eagerly. And look at this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's key. Elders um, have spiritual oversight. We are given the command and the commission under God to love the flock, to not do it for any sort of personal gain, but to do it self-sacrificially. And the only reason why someone would sacrifice this kind of time and emotion and energy would be out of a calling, out of a sense of love for the flock. And this is the standard for which we're held to, and not to dominate, not to, not to be dictators, not to, to rule in a fleshly way, but to be examples. And we're all under the true chief shepherd, the true senior pastor, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now look at verse 5. This is the biblical balance of the body of Christ. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This is a call in verse 5 in particular to younger men. Why is Peter pointing out younger men? Probably because there is a temptation when you're a young guy to sort of stand up and say, yeah, you think you know what's going on, but I really know what's going on. I mean, the whole idea of eldership typically points to someone who's older in the Lord. And that typically means they've clocked a few miles in a few years in the Lord. Well, young guys, and I was one of them. I'm sort of in the middle age um, camp now, I guess. But I used to be one of those young hotshots who thought he knew it all. And, you know, I'd read a few books and a few things. And that is a real lesson to a guy like me, especially, you know, a few decades ago, that it's important to come underneath. It's the word hupatasso, it's submission. It's the same idea as wives in the home. You might think you, you know, have something on the ball in terms of where the family should go, but you don't want to buck the biblical design. You want to, to keep your husband in the leadership role, even if you're appealing to them in wisdom with a heart and an attitude of submission. That's not just to wives, that's to the whole body of Christ, to spiritual leaders. And as one of the fellow elders, even though the senior pastor, I am always calling myself into account. You can ask the other elders, you know. I've had disagreements with elders before, but I, I'm always called according to scripture, to have a heart of submission to come underneath and watch the Lord work through his biblical design, which is eldership. And when eldership is, is happening in the way that Paul is appealing to Philemon, where you're appealing to heart responses, where you don't want to have to command the will, but you, you would be willing to do that. You'd be willing to say, listen, this is what the Bible says and you have to obey. You're willing to go there, but really it's a wooing of the hearts. And then the body of Christ is submissively seeking God's will and God's direction through the word of God with a submissive attitude to the spiritual leadership. There are beautiful and amazing things that happen. And the body of Christ has an incredible testimony. And I always want to call us to that. There are many churches who don't understand eldership. They don't understand submission. It's kind of taboo. And, you know, a lot of churches are, are following things in different ways. And I want us to follow God's word to the best of our ability. We're not going to do it perfectly well. But at least the word of God is clear. And it tells us um, the pathway to take. Number three. Um, we're given, the reason we can't withhold forgiveness is we're given new Christian identities. Secondly, God refashions our hearts to love. And then thirdly, God transforms relationships from enemies 
to brothers, enemies to brothers. And I would add even another word here. He transforms us from enemies to eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to have relationships that go on forever. I think it's one thing to say, well, I can outlast that person in this lifetime. You know, I can, I can dig in and we can just like get old and have our, you know, sort of position and just kind of out, you know, clock that person. But if you begin to think, no, I've got to face that person through all of eternity. And of course, we won't have sinful hearts anymore, so things will get better then. But, you know, why not taste that heavenly relationship now? And that's Paul's point, what he's doing in the next few verses. Verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Now, this is time-sensitive language in verse 15. It sort of opens up when you see it that way. For this, in other words, what's happened, where Onesimus left and has returned, perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That, That phrase is really one word. It's the idea that this is why he was gone for an hour, literally. It's the Greek word hour. It's a metaphor. It's the idea that, look, this is why he was gone for a little bit of time. Why? This small little sliver of time, this little inconvenience for you, Philemon, was for what? Perhaps, look at the end of verse 15, that you might have him back forever. One hour, one little inconvenient little slice of time. That's why you had to go through this hard time. You were stolen from, you were kind of robbed. He left you, sort of, made your life inconvenient for an hour so that he could get saved and you could become brothers forever. That's what Paul's saying. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful uh, picture of God's sovereignty. And the reason I bring that word sovereignty up is look at verse 15. I love this word. And it's, I, I looked it up. It's explicitly there. It wasn't just translators smoothing things. It, for this, the word perhaps is in there. And I love that. You know why? Because Paul, even though he heard directly from God, he's an inspired apostle, he's still like every other Christian saying, I'm trying to figure out the sovereignty of God here in this. Why did this happen? I don't know exactly, but perhaps as I piece things together, it was so that you could be inconvenienced, so that you could have him back as a brother forever, perhaps. I love that. I think that's good. I want us to look um, at Genesis chapter 45 real quickly. I think that The story of Joseph is so apropos. A lot of people in my study pointed to this. Genesis chapter 45. You know the story where Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites as a slave, to be a slave by his brothers. By his his physical brothers. They hated him. Most of them wanted to kill Joseph. His father, Jacob, loved him, who was also called Israel. And he was heartbroken because the brothers said, Oh, he got eaten by wild animals. Here's the coat. It's ripped up. It's got blood on it. He's dead. So grieve through that your whole life, Dad. You lost your favorite son, who we hate because you showed favoritism towards him. And then the Lord bumped and bumpity bumped Joseph through this life of being in prison, being left there for years, forgotten about. 
and then he was, by the providence of God and the hand of God on his life, raised to sort of vice presidency under Pharaoh, over command of millions and millions of people in the sweet spot in the world at the time. This is where Joseph was elevated to, and now he is doing the big reveal to his brothers. Oh, by the way, I'm not left for dead somewhere or a slave anymore. I'm now in command of this nation, and I'm in command of your physical destiny. Verse 41 of chapter 41, 45. Chapter 45, verse 1. There we go. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is reconciliation. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Look at the God-centeredness here. This is why he could forgive, because he believed in sovereign God. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. It's the key to reconciliation. You got to see the, what is God doing? What was God up to? But God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Turn to Genesis 50. It's the same scene. The father has died the brothers are shaking in their boots. They didn't really understand the God message. They didn't understand that their lives were no longer in jeopardy. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, quote, your father gave this command before he died saying to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Here it is. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, do you think Joseph just forgave him because of dad? No. He believed God was sovereign. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So do not fear. I will provide for you. This is reconciliation. This is not, hey, on paper, everything's good. You know, that's what dad said. So you guys are safe. Get out of jail free card. This is, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You need to be ready to forgive. Why? Because Jesus forgave you. That's it. He, he, he found you, just like Onesimus. Remember Martin Luther, we're all Onesimuses. We're all Onesimuses. We all ran. We all sought worldly protection, worldly shelter. It all ran out on us. We were bankrupt without Christ. We were all given the second chance. We're sent back to our master. You know, we were part of Adam when he fell. So it's like we were born in sin, but that was never the plan in the first place. And we sinned and we ran away. And, and then we're, it's like we're sent back to our creator. And we don't know exactly how Philemon responded to Onesimus. Again, we assume it's a very happy ending. But guess what? I know how God received you back when you came to him as that slave who ran away, who wants to come back, who wants to be restored. Jesus took you in his arms and said, my good and willing servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's the end of the story for you and for me as Christians. And because we know that story and that's our story, that's our truth and our promise as Christians, how can we withhold forgiveness from anyone? We can't. All things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called and are called according to his purposes. Let's enjoy the goodness of God as we're conformed to the image of Christ and be repenters and forgivers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in...